Hi, and you are listening to the This I Believe podcast series, a podcast series exploring the essentials of the Christian faith. Hey, and welcome to the This I Believe podcast series. Um, it's so great to have you with us. My name is Adam Beyer. I'm an associate pastor at Terwilliger Community Church. And I'm Zachary Ward. I am a student of theology and history at Regent College in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. And it's great to have you uh, with us here, Zach. Uh, Zach and I will be co-hosting this entire podcast, and he's bringing a wisdom and an edge that I certainly don't have, so, so it's good. So in our first episode, we spent a lot of time talking about theological reflection, this idea of what is theology, why is theology important. In our second episode, we talked about if we're going to do theolo- theological reflection, what are the sources that we need to be considering or looking at um, for us to be able to do that reflection? Uh, so we talked about history, scripture, experience. I'm saying them out of order, but that's okay. Uh, and logic um, as kind of sources of theology. And so in this episode, we want to get us into what they might call theology proper. So theology is the study of God. Theology proper is just that. It's talking about who God is. And that is an incredibly important question. Who is God? Yeah. Yeah, it's very important for us to understand um, uh, the God that we are worshiping, just to be certain that we aren't worshiping uh, a God of our own creation, uh, which is the definition of idolatry, but rather that we are worshiping the God of Scripture. Yeah, I remember hearing uh, Pastor Paul Washer teach on this idea. He was uh, hitting. He was talking about how Sunday morning worship in America is is possibly um, the time of greatest idol worship in the country when people gather together in their churches to worship, um, but their understanding of God can be so flawed and so based on what they want God to be can be so misconstrued that they aren't actually worshiping uh, the God that's revealed to us in the person of Jesus, uh, recorded in the Holy Scriptures. Um, and and so you run into this problem where you think people think that they're following and worshiping the God of the Bible, but really their lack of understanding, their lack of um, of theological reflections, put them in a place where they they aren't. So we want to jump into this conversation about God by first recognizing that God is not unique to the Christian story. Um, to say that I believe in God is not a uniquely Christian thing to say. Even um, various other religions have opinions on who God is. And uh, we also understand that there's many worldviews that would say that God doesn't exist. So we just want to give a really quick survey about um, about what some different worldviews are, and then we'll kind of land at where we stand as, as Christians. Um, so we'll start, maybe we'll look at it a bit as a spectrum. Um, I'm not an expert in worldviews. Um, Zach's going to help me out a bit. Uh, and we'll kind of look at it from one end and journey along to another end, and hopefully you learn a bit as we go. Um, so let's look at one end of the spectrum, which uh, I think is something that's commonly known, uh, atheism. Now, if we take the word atheism and break it down, we have the A at the beginning, which would mean without, and then theism, uh, which again, going back to the Greek, the theos, so meaning God, so atheism without God. So an atheist is someone who does not um, for a second believe that God exists. They believe that we are here um, by some sort of accident or, or some sort of natural occurrence has led to the existence of the world and to humanity, uh, that there is no sort of deity out there that uh, has created us or cares to uh, influence or impact our lives. So um, atheism, obviously alive and well, um, a lot of people would say that they are atheists. So if we were to move a bit down the spectrum, we might look at a worldview um, where people would say that they are agnostic. Now, again, uh, looking at the word, the A, meaning without, the Gnostics, uh, again, to the Greek, gnosis, knowledge. So this idea of without knowledge. So an agnostic would be someone who would say that, you know, there may or may not be a God, but we really can't know. Uh, It's not something that we can figure out. And so, you know, who, who really cares? <laughs> I remember watching a, a show where one of the characters told another character that he was agnostic and um, the other character looked at him and, and rolled their eyes and said, oh, so you're a lazy atheist. Yeah, and I think that hits on a good point as well that um, I think, firstly, I would say that I think that agnosticism is actually in a lot of ways more prevalent these days than atheism. I think there's a lot of people who will say, Oh, yeah, you know, I believe in God, but then they have this understanding of God that just kind of comes from their feelings of what a good being would be like. 
uh, but they don't have a relationship with God, right? Or they say, I don't know if God exists or not, and so I'm not going to worry about it. Um, and I think that that comes from uh, an agnostic understanding, that they can't really know God, but we have these ideas through experience and experience alone about what God might be like. Right. And so I think that the whole lazy atheist is perhaps not a bad title for an agnostic or it's like, it's almost like it's someone who's refused to do good theological reflection. Yeah. Someone who's refused to have the, the dark reality of a world without God. Right. Right. And they just want to view right. things how they want to view things and that's it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. It's just like, Oh yeah, I'll do, I'll essentially, I'll live like an atheist, but I'm not going to do any of the work of actually like philosophically considering what that means. Right. Right. You yeah. Know? And this you could probably contrast to our next worldview, um, which we would call naturalism or materialism. Materialism, not to be confused with consumerism, um, but the naturalist, the naturalist or materialist worldview is is basically saying that they accept only the natural world, so the things that they can see, get their hands around. Um, I might be wrong on this, but like the things that they can measure, things that they can put metrics on. There's a sense of of knowing, a sense of controlling what's around them. Um, and, and there's a, they claim their certainty in what they can see and touch and feel and hear. Mm -hmm. It's a very much a, I'll believe it when I see it kind of, uh, kind of worldview, uh, where the only things that exist are, when you say materialism, we're saying that we believe in the only things, or they believe in the only things that are part of the material world, as opposed to the spiritual world. It's a complete denial of the spiritual world. And I think that um, this is an easy one to fall into as a Christian even uh, because it's so, our world is so very materialistic in this regard. And it also um, – it's hard, it's hard sometimes to think about things you can't even see. Right. 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 And uh, I, think, I think especially uh, – I think that the church has a lot to learn from our Pentecostal brothers and sisters who – who are right to recognize that there is a big difference between, or rather, I think the church has a lot to learn from our Pentecostal brothers and sisters who rightly affirm that the physical and the spiritual world are not too far apart from each other. The veil is thin. Um, we all oftentimes we look at or we imagine the spiritual world as being removed from. Right. But they overlap a lot more than we recognize right. regularly. And I think that's an important distinction to make as the church. And what and oftentimes I do think the church can slip into an implicit materialism. Right, right. Yeah, that's a, that's a good word. That's a good thing for us to be aware of in our own lives. Um, and so those are maybe three worldviews that might, like reject might be a strong word for the atheist for sure, reject. But uh, three worldviews that we would say aren't... Um, aren't saying that there is a God. So let's look at uh, four theistic understandings of the world. Yeah, the very first one that we could look at um, is uh, deism. Uh, deism is the belief that um, that God exists. It's an affirmation of the existence of a God, but not the God of the Bible, because the deistic God is a distant God. Um, the classic definition or uh of a deist is somebody who believes that God is a master workman who created the universe perfectly, got it all moving and spinning, and then went off to go work on something else in his workshop. Right. And has just left left creation to do its thing. And he's gone. Um, this, uh, this solves a very big problem for atheists of where did we come from? Because it does affirm the existence of they're needing to be a creator. Uh, but it, af but after that, it falls distantly from a Christian understanding of God. Um, it, it, it started when, uh, people like Isaac Newton started to really be able to properly understand how the universe works. Um, and they, and he found that the universe worked like a perfect clockwork. And some people took that, and ran with it because Newton wasn't a deist, uh, but took it and ran with it and said that, oh, because of this, we have no need for God. Mm. Right. And so you end up kind of rejecting 
um, a, t- a belief in God that might actually influence how you live your lives. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And that could probably be contrast to the, the following three worldviews. Um, the next one we'll look at is pantheism. Um, back to breaking down the word uh, pan, meaning all. Again, theism, God. So all God um, or or uh, we kind of see this in a more modern sense in the new age movement. It, it's kind of this understanding that we are all made of cosmic stuff. So like you are God and, and I am God. And, and really that whole, your truth is your truth. Um, my truth is my truth. I think really um, takes, takes off in kind of this understanding where we are all gods within ourselves. We all decide what is good and what is evil. Uh, we understand what the universe is made up of and, and how we're supposed to live in its context. So, um, so this very much affirming the spiritual, uh, this very much seeing a connection between the natural and the spiritual, uh, some extremes of this, um, is actually the reversal where there's kind of rejection of the physical and the spiritual is what transcends and what is greater. Um, and it, so they kind of get caught up in, in some of that spirituality. Um, but this is a very prevalent um, understanding of the world and something I'm seeing and hearing uh, people um, affirm more and more people who want nothing to do with Christianity, nothing to do with the God of the Bible, but would claim to be highly spiritual um, in and of mm-hmm. themselves. Absolutely. And I, and I think that uh, that is contrasted to everything being God uh, with the next view, polytheism. Um Different from pantheism in that uh, it doesn't believe that everything is God, but it does believe that there are very many gods. Um, polytheism is actually um, historically, um, like we, when we look into ancient history, the most common understanding of theism. Um, oftentimes you would have gods for different communities. You know, you may have your gods which are local um, but you also have your gods, which are uh, gods over certain different elements. Uh, the Greek pantheon is a great example of this. You have uh, Zeus, who's the king of the gods and the god of this, a god of lightning and storms. And you have Ares, who's the god of battle. And you have Mercury, the messenger god. And they all have different roles in the pantheon. Right. Uh, so polytheism is a belief in many different right. gods. Uh, polytheism is still alive and well today. Uh, in uh, religions like Hinduism, where they have 33 million different gods and goddesses, uh, which you may have, uh, you, you, you aren't obligated to worship all of them, even in, in polytheistic understandings in Hinduism. You have, you have your god and your neighbor might have his god and the, in the city down the road or village down the road will have their own different god, um, which you will honor and respect, but you all, everyone will generally worship their own section, subset of that. Right. Yeah, and polytheism is something we interact with in, in the Bible too, right? We see all these different cultures around Israel having their gods, and there's this refrain you read in Scripture where they say, the God of Israel. Um, and that that statement is saying that there's something distinct about this God to the other gods. But in that cultural context, there was an affirmation that there were many gods um, who all kind of did their thing. The Hebrew people, the Israelites, um, have always been the odd people out in the world surrounding them. Mm. Uh, yeah, because in, in old Testament times, they were, uh, surrounded by a bunch of, uh, polytheists in the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Egyptians. And then in the new Testament period with the Romans who, uh, had their own polytheistic understanding that was based off of the Greek gods. And this is a great transition because it takes us to our final worldview. Uh, when you talk about the Israelites or, um, or yeah. So the takes when you talk about the Israelites, because the Israelites had a worldview, uh, which we would call monotheism, which is the belief that there is one God. Uh, and this worldview, uh, we understand that the three major religions of the world, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, um, they are all, um, they all believe in a monotheistic understanding of the world. So this is an understanding that there is one God, and that this one God has created the universe, and that humanity is accountable to that one God. Um, and, and so we live our lives in the light of that truth. Yeah. Um, and I think that one way to make this even a little more distinct from say deism, where we have this belief in a deist could believe in one God, uh, a pantheist could believe in one God who puts themselves in all of creation. Uh, but monotheism that we're talking about is specifically ethical monotheism. 
that there is a, there is one God, and this one God uh, has taught us how we ought to live hmm. our lives. This is this, as Adam said, that we're account that that we have some. There's some accountability here. Right. Uh, that rather than just making us and saying go have fun, uh, uh, there's there's an understanding that this that this being has uh, that God has over uh, the way that we ought to be living our lives. Right. Um, and I think too, it's important to note that um, the whole idea of truth, I think comes up in this context, because um, I think something that we believe as Christians is, is that truth is not something that is within us. Um, it's not something that we choose what it is. Uh, we believe that truth is truth um, no matter what. And I think something I love about Christianity, and I'm sure this is evident in other religions, um, but but Christian, Christianity in general has a amazing academic um, academic history of really being rigorous in in seeking to understand and know the truth. We've chased after it. We've 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 um, gone down various lines of thinking. We've we've wrestled with science. We've wrestled with reason. All these different things, um, and still coming out the other end, affirming that what's been revealed to us in Scripture is indeed true. Um, and again, this comes back to accountability. If we believe in an ethical monotheistic uh, worldview um, and we believe that it is true, then it has to shape how we live our lives. Or uh, if it's not shaping how we live our lives, it means that we are actually rejecting the truth and saying, ah, it doesn't really matter to me. It doesn't matter how I live my life. Um, but I think we all know that if we believe that something's true, it impacts the way we live. Um, and so it's really important to consider what your worldview is. And as Zach brought up earlier, um, as a, even as a Christian, it's important to be aware of how a material, a materialist or naturalist uh, worldview might influence you as a Christian. Or um, as a Christian, you need to recognize how a, a pantheistic understanding or worldview is impacting your understanding of God. Um, and again, this all goes back to episode one, where the importance of theological reflection and the discipline of really thinking about these things. So it's important for us as Christians to understand that our worldview isn't the only worldview. Um, however, our conviction as Christians uh, leads us to a place that we we do affirm this position of ethical monotheism, um, that there is one true God who created the world, uh, and then we believe that we are accountable to him. We call that the truth. And so uh, we'll talk about evangelism and witness later on in the series, um, but that's one of the things that we cling to and we desire to see other people uh, to come and learn and believe. Um, and so it's important for us to talk about not only that we have this worldview, but the why of, well, why do we believe this? Um, well, we've already talked a bit uh, in our first episode uh, that we believe um, in this one true God because we believe he's actually revealed himself to us. When we talk about sources of theology, remember we talked about uh, the scriptures being a primary source of theology, our experience, um, tradition, our logic, um, all these things are at play, uh, kind of speaking to us, teaching us in a way. And as we exercise theological reflection, uh, we start to draw some conclusions. Um, so we just want to talk a bit more about that. And um, I, I've asked Zach to talk a bit about something called the, called the cosmological argument. So this would be, um, why do we believe in uh, um, an ethical monotheistic worldview? Um, well, there's, there's good reason for that. And this is a reasonable argument that would lead us to a conclusion of an ethical monotheistic worldview. Yeah, um, the cosmological argument is something which is called um, uh, natural theology. Uh, so it, it is it is us looking at the world um, and making and making reasoned arguments about uh, about God in that sense, right? Uh, this is uh, you know in, in a lot of ways uh, apologetics kind of picks up where this natural uh, theology kind of comes up. Um, the cosmological argument specifically that we're looking at is um, one put forth by Thomas Aquinas. Um, Aquinas argued this uh, in his book, The Summa Theologica, uh, which ended up being one of the more important, if not the most important, uh, piece of Christian writing in the high Middle Ages, or the late Middle Ages. Um, essentially, what the cosmological argument boils down to is that since the universe is in motion, since that since things are happening, uh, since the creation exists, there has to be something which caused it. Um, 
because the universe began to exist and thus there has to be something which began that existence. Um, the universe can't create itself and so it has to come from something outside of it. And this is where we get this understanding of, uh, of God as first mover from. Um, of course, uh, this comes with its own limitations. This doesn't, this doesn't teach us that the Christian God is real. It just teaches us that, um, that, well, there must have been a God to, to set this in motion. Which is a really important thing for us to, to cling to and to understand the, the why. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think a really great analogy that I've heard for the cosmological argument is uh, that of dominoes that are falling. If you see a row of dominoes falling over, you assume there has to have been something which pushed the dominoes to begin. They aren't just falling down eternally, right? So there has to be a beginning where the first domino was pushed. And uh, that's a really good understanding of something like the cosmological argument. Which, again, will only bring us as close as a deistic understanding of God, that God created everything. But it is a, it is a very good argument just to begin with proving that or showing that, well, there has to be God. There has to be a God. Okay, so maybe to summarize what you're saying here, Zach, well, we would say that whatever begins to exist has a cause. We understand that the universe began to exist. So therefore, the universe, universe must have a cause. And so if the universe does have a cause, we understand it cannot cause itself. Its cause must be beyond the space-time universe, which is what you're talking about here with these dominoes. Someone had to push the first domino. Yeah, yeah. And I think what's, uh, again, we come back to, um, I, I like what you said, that this doesn't necessarily prove that the God of the Bible is the God, um, but it is a great way to think about the universe and, and understand that um, there is a strong logical case uh, for a monotheistic understanding of the world. Um, there's a cool verse in Nehemiah chapter 9, uh, where, where Nehemiah says that you are the one and only Lord. You made the heavens. You made even the highest heavens. You created all the stars in the sky. You created the earth and everything on it. You made the oceans and everything in them. You give life to everything. Every living being in heaven worships you. And I think this, um, you know, we look at something like the logic behind the cosmological argument and then you jump into scriptures and we start to see, again, why it's so important for us to understand God's word and have it speak to us about these things. Because obviously Nehemiah is saying, well, yeah, the universe does have a cause and that God um, has revealed himself to us uh, in the person of Jesus Christ. And even in, for Nehemiah, looking around creation and his understanding of the world, uh, it was obvious uh, he's saying it, this was Yahweh who created all of this, which is super cool. It really is, yeah. And, uh, of course, the cosmological argument within that um, is just another way of God revealing to himself through creation. Right. Uh, which we, you know, um, the heavens declaring the glory of God. Right. That's, yeah, Psalm 8, of course. Uh, and that's, I think, what's so cool. And I, I don't know, I remember growing up at going to summer camp and stuff, and that was always like, one of the arguments that the speaker would make, he'd be like, look around you, look at all this creation. Like, how can you say that there isn't a God, you know, or, or you drive out to the mountains and it's kind of that same argument. And, and while that argument feels kind of empty, I, at the same time, I think that, um, it, there's a truth to that reality. Isn't Absolutely. There? Um, there's just so much and someone has to put it there. Right. Even, um, even today, um, scientists will be able to explain all sorts of the manner in which things happen. But when you go, every time you go back one level, eventually you get to a point where they say, well, we just cannot say how it started. Yeah, we don't know who pushed the dominoes. With, without, affirming, without affirming God. And of course, there are plenty of excellent scientists out there who, um, who will affirm God as creator. Right. Awesome. Yeah, and I think that's where we want to go next is is this reality of God as the creator of all. Um, and so obviously our source for this understanding does come from the Christian uh, scriptures. Uh, we we open our Bibles. Uh, if you're new to Christianity or just have a Bible there, maybe open up the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Uh, and in that uh, we have in the first uh, two chapters is the, the creation account. And 
again, if we, we look at Scripture as a record of God's revelation to humanity, the words that are in there are incredibly, incredibly important. Um, and then we read in there that God is uh, the creator of all. And one of the things we affirm is that God, like how he created, uh, the method in which God created, it really is a mystery to us um, as as people. Uh, there's things we can hint at through science. There's, there's evidence um, perhaps in the text as well as to how God created. Um, but essentially, at the end of the day, it's just this massive, massive mystery. Uh, something they talk about in theology is this idea of God creating ex nihilo or out of nothing, um, that, that God created. He wasn't using material that existed. Uh, he was, um, he created matter out of nothing, uh, which is something so, uh, again, so profound uh, to think about. And to believe that was foreign to the, uh, to any of the nations surrounding Israel, um, this belief that God that God could create everything out of nothing. Hmm. Um, and uh, it really sets apart Christianity around its, its neighbors at the time. Oh, wow. I didn't actually realize that. Uh, so, other, yeah. 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 I didn't realize that. That's, that's neat. Um, yeah. It's, oh, every, uh, every other ancient, ancient Near Eastern creation story has God creating the universe out of himself, like parts of him or out of a different deity or something, or you forming out of, pre-existing material but it's only uh the christian uh scriptures which talks about god creating or nothing and i remember too even in in bible college the theology prof highlighting this reality that even time and space are created elements right and that still mm-hmm. is something that like i can't fully wrap my head around i'm by no means in any way a um a, a physicist <laughs> like i don't understand all that stuff um but it's just this this profound reality that the time and space which we exist in and occupy, um, they are themselves created uh, by God. Uh, and I think what's so cool about these realities is it really, for us, points to this, this fact that we can trust in God um, and this reality that we are moment by moment dependent on God for our very existence. God created all of this. And that moment by moment dependency on God for our very existence, for the very existence of the universe, of the universe uh, really ties in well with the way that God uh, refers to himself in meeting with us uh, in meeting with, um, with Moses in the burning bush as the I am. Because, uh, of course, am, am is a verb. Ab, it's, it's an active name that God has. Hmm. And just to back up, like, um, if you don't know this, in, in the book of Exodus, which is the second book in the Old Testament, there's this crazy account where the guy Moses is out tending sheep in the wilderness, and he sees a bush on fire, uh, but the bush is not consumed by the fire. So, of course, he goes to check this out, what's going on here, and he has this profound encounter with, with God, the God of the Bible, um, this creator God. And, and in that conversation, Moses asks God his name, which is a big deal because uh, in Egypt, all the gods had names. They all had certain powers and uh, authority over certain elements of the universe. Um, and so it's like Moses is saying, okay, okay, well, there's all these gods. Which God are you? And God answers back saying that I am the I am or, or I will be who I will be uh, is another way you can translate it. Um, yeah, this I am who I am is uh, is God, is Yahweh proclaiming his eternal, self-sustaining, self-determining, sovereign reality. Um, nothing outside of God can change God. That's that, that's called his immutability. And I think that's what's what's so amazing to me about um, when we're talking about this ethical monotheism, right? Like it's it's this worldview that is existing outside of us. Um, and maybe that's so profound be- to me because we live in a day and age where this whole idea of your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, truth wells up from within me, or it's however I see or experience the world. Um, you know, like, I-, I feel like God's declaration of the I am is like, no, that's just hogwash. Like, it doesn't work. It doesn't hold water. It falls apart so quickly um, where there's this reality around God that who God is um, is is not affected by what I think about him, what I say about him, what I feel about him. He is who he is. He will be who he will be. And I'm getting preachy. Um, but in our churches, uh, the word that we use, um, the name of God that you'll hear uh, is Yahweh. 
I won't get into why it's Yahweh or how we go from I am to Yahweh, but if you ever hear that that a pastor or someone say Yahweh, that's what they're referring to, um, is the I am, uh, this revealing of God, uh, giving this name to Moses. And the other amazing thing about this, and this is super important, is that when we read scripture, um, our English translations have taken that name of God and they write it in English as Lord, but they write it with a capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And so whenever you see that cap locks Lord in your Bible, uh, they're translating that from the I am, um, which uh, they have there in the Hebrew, bringing it into the English as as Lord. Um, and, and it's important because there's, there's passages where it will go between Lord with a capital L, lowercase O-R-D, um, and then back to Lord, capital L-O-R-D. Um, and to me, I just think there's a distinction there because um, not only is God our Lord as in our authority or the one we submit to, but he's also this Yahweh, this one who is completely unchanging, uh, which is, is super important for us. So I encourage you as you read uh, specifically the Old Testament, that when you see that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, to think Yahweh. Um, but how else does God revealed himself to us? Uh, something I want to talk about in this, this episode, again, we're talking about who is God. Uh, We really can't have this conversation without talking uh, not only about ethical monotheistic um, theology but um, or worldview, but we also need to talk about, well, God is monotheistic, as in only one God. He's also three persons. So before we jump into talking about Trinity, I just want to read for us our Alberta Baptist Association or North American Baptist Statement of Faith about the Trinity. And this is what they say. We believe in the one living and true God, perfect in wisdom, sovereignty, holiness, justice, mercy, and love. He exists eternally in three co-equal persons who act together in creation, providence, and redemption. And then the statement of faith is going to go on to specifically have statements regarding the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And throughout the podcast series, we'll jump into those distinctives. But that first part that I just read for us, uh, this idea of God existing eternally in three co-equal persons who act together in creation, providence, and redemption uh, is very, very important um, to being a Christian. Uh, If you do not believe in Trinitarian theology, if you don't believe that God is three in one, uh, you are probably denying that Jesus is God, which um, historically is heresy. Um, But yeah, Zach, talk to us about the, the Trinity. Yeah, absolutely. The, tr- the Trinitarian theology was uh, as soon as the church had a chance to, like, you know, sit down and be able to have big theological conversations, um, which is around the fourth century. Uh, the first place they begin is Trinity, and I think we've touched on this a couple of times uh, in previous episodes. Um, but today, I want to look specifically at Athanasius. Athanasius was a fourth century. Uh, Christian theologian um, and bishop in Alexandria. And he was at the Council of Nicaea where the doctrine of the Trinity was uh, uh, officially affirmed by the church. Uh, Of course, it's in scripture, but they were just uh, affirming that and trying to express that. Uh, But he went on to write himself uh, a creed called the Athanasian Creed. Hmm. Uh, And I think this is probably the clearest and... Um, most precise arguments of like what the what it means for Trinity. Uh, I'm just going to read a very brief section of it because it's actually uh, reasonably long. But uh, he says that I believe in one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, without either confusing the persons or dividing the substance. The Father's person is one, the Son's another, and the Holy Spirit's another. But the Godhead of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one. Their glory is equal. Their majesty is co-eternal. And as we see this, as we read that, um, we hear a lot of echoes of that in the uh, statement of faith for the uh, NAB that Adam just read. This (laughs) idea of a co-equal and co-eternal God. Yeah. No, that's, yeah, totally. And and I, I, I think I like something you've said about this creed, right? Is that to, you, you believe that to deviate from Athanasian's definition, um, is to court heresy, <laughs> which, uh, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Uh, exactly what you just said about, um, if you are denying the Trinity, 
uh, that means you're most likely denying the lordship of Christ, which uh, you said would be would you know would make you a heretic. That that has like calling saying Jesus is Lord is is the definition of what it means to be absolutely. a Christian. So it's not yeah. maybe heresy; it's absolutely apostasy. Right. Right. To deny that Christ is Lord. Define apostasy for us, quick. Yeah, of course. Apostasy, of course, is just uh, literally just uh, denying God. Right. Uh, a heretical belief can be um, repented of uh, or corrected, but if you're if you are holding firm on a on a on a, on a belief which is denying Christ's lordship, uh, then that's that's apostasy. Hmm. Of course. I don't want to say that you can't return from that either. Of course, right, God's right. God's mercy is is huge. But if you if you refuse to shift on that, uh, then you there's there's no way you could really call yourself a Christian. Right. And so the the Christian then is saying that there are three distinct persons: the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, who are distinguishable from one another, and yet they share the same divine nature or essence and relate to one another in unbroken fellowship. Now, if this is a new concept to you, or you've been around the church for a while, you're probably very confused. (laughs) Even if you're in one of those two camps, you're probably very confused. Um, And I can't remember if we talked about this already, but in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, we read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and all your might. Um, And so, that passage is so important to to Jews, and it's so important to Christians. Um, and I and here's what gets so confusing about the Trinitarian theology is that to affirm Trinity is not to deny uh, Deuteronomy chapter six verse four. We still believe that God is one; uh, that there is no other God beside Him. Um, and so Trinity is for sure a confusing um, aspect of our Christian faith. Um, there's a lot of mystery to it. Um, but again, he's the I am. What we think about him, all that isn't going to change him. Um, and I think it's important for us to note that the mystery of the Trinity is by no means a ground for any type of denial. Um, just to say that something is mysterious is not to say it, it, it is wrong or doesn't exist. Um, if you were to use that logic in, in the whole scientific world, they could look at the origins of creation and say, well, there's mystery there. Well, we're still here. We still exist. Um, so there, mystery exists in all sorts of different realms in, in our lives. There's so many things we can't fully understand, and that's okay. Um, to go back to our first episode, the importance is that we keep asking these questions and, and keep meditating on it and, and keep working to to understand it the best we can but we recognize um, that we can't fully understand it. So you might be wondering, like, why is the Trinity, why is this important? Why do we make this distinctive? Um, And if you, again, have been around the church for a while, or if you've read the Bible um, much at all, you would say, well, the Trinity isn't even mentioned in Scripture. And that's true. Uh, This word Trinity and our understanding of it has emerged from um, centuries worth of thought and prayer and counsels, um, kind of leading to this understanding. And um, I think both Zach and I would affirm that, and the NAB and the ABA and, and all other Christians would affirm that this Trinitarian understanding is is a good one. It's a good a way to understand uh, God's revelation to us um, recorded in Scripture. Um, and I, I would something I encourage people to think about when they're having troubles with understanding the Trinity is that the Trinity is something we see at work when we start praying. Um, throughout Scripture, we have references to prayer. Uh, Jesus teaches us to pray to the Father, um, but we read in Hebrews that Jesus is standing interceding on our behalf, so we pray through the Son to the Father, uh, and, uh, and we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. So every time you begin praying, um, you're kind of engaging in um, the importance of the distinctions within the Trinity, that we pray to the Father, through the Son, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, which I, um, which I found something that's really enriched my my prayer life personally. Yeah, it's really exciting to be able to um, to see uh, or experience the different the different persons of the Trinity in our understanding when we pray. Uh, it definitely, is very enriching. Yeah. And there's lots of like really bad ways to understand uh, the Trinity. Again, I, I referenced summer camp earlier, and it was at that same summer camp where you know my camp counselor is trying to explain. Um, the Trinity to me by saying, well, you know, it's, it's like water, you know, water can take these three forms. You either have water, vapor, or ice. 
But is there a problem thinking that way, Zach? Absolutely there is. Uh, that is an ancient heresy called modalism or Sabellianism, named after the, the person who first put it forth, Sibelius. Um, and the problem with that is that it denies the distinction of the persons. Hmm. It just says there's one person. Right. Uh, modalism saying there's three different modes uh, that God takes, the three different forms he takes. And the pro- one of the big problems that I see in that as well, especially is that that means we never actually know God. Hmm. The, 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 uh, the image we have of, of, of mo- uh, of that's used to expl- express modalism is of a God who puts on the father mask and then the son mask and the spirit mask but we never actually see who's behind it. Right. <laughs> and that, of course, contradicts and stands against the teaching of Scripture wow. on the matter. I've never heard it put that way, the masks. That's really profound. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so my other camp counselor told me that I can think about the Trinity like an egg, where an egg has a shell, a yolk, and then, of course, the egg whites. Is that, a, mm-hmm. is that an accurate way? See, and that, that actually goes in the entire other direction. And, of course, that is, that's also uh, an explanation that people always love to attribute to St. Patrick with the, the clover, the three-leaf clover, hmm. uh, each side being a different part of God. But that, of course, ends up dividing the Godhead too much. It's called partialism, this belief that um, we, get, we understand God as being... Uh, uh, not as being one. It, it, it denies the unity of the Godhead. It separates them too much, uh, which, of course, is a huge issue. Right. And I think that unity of the of the Godhead is, is really important for us um, when we start looking at some of the understanding of creation. Um, this is something, again, I, I learned in Bible school that kind of blew my mind, um, where my prof had put a huge emphasis on, on what he called God's anxiety, which I think I uh, referenced a little bit earlier. Uh, and basically, he asked the question of, um, wh- why did God create? If we ask that question, why did God create? Uh, was God lonely? Uh, was God, uh, did he need to be worshipped? Did he uh, Did he wake up one morning and go, huh, I, I'd really like um, a universe for me to like mess around with, right? Um, you know, that's a, an important question. Why did God create? Um, but if we look at the Trinity, we would say that, we could say that the Trinity reveals to us that God was is not dependent on anything else for his being or his perfection. Therefore, God did not have to create us. Instead, he chose to create us, um, which again, when we talk about the love of God, uh, this is so, so profound. Uh, so God was not lonely because he's coexisting equal in th- in uh, one in three. Uh, God did not need to be worshipped because that relational need, that that sense of worth and value is 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 all caught up and wrapped up in the Trinity as we understand it, which is, again, super profound. Now, if we contrast this to Islam or Judaism, we have a they have a bit of a problem that they need to address uh, when we come to this question of why did God create? So Islam's God has to create or else he would not be perfect. Uh, if we think about love as a moral thing, in order for moral perfection to come, the world had to be created so that he would have something to love. Um, if he's morally perfect with love, um, then he needs something to love enabled in order to be loving. So in and of himself, this God of Islam, this, this non-Trinitarian God uh, cannot be perfect in and of himself. The Judaism is the same thing. The love of the Trinity is expressed in perfection within itself. Uh, so God did not create out of need, but only out of freedom. Um, and and again, when we think about God's love for us, uh, it's just so profound. He created us because He wanted to, not because He had to. Yeah, and this and this and this this really shows the love of God because love, of course, uh, is ultimately a procreative thing. Um, and so as as the Trinity is functioning in its perfect love for it within within itself within himself within the community of the trinity um it's almost a given that there will be a creative act that comes out of it absolutely so good it's so good um yeah so i guess the last thing we want to touch on in this episode is just to zoom in to god the father um so again to to give the ABA statement of faith on this uh the statement reads like this uh, the father reigns with providential care over all of life and history in the created universe he hears and answers prayer he initiated salvation by sending his son 
and he is father to those who by faith accept his son as Lord and Savior. Uh, So that's the statement of faith on God the Father. Uh, So the emphasis in this statement, um, and I think I've already spoken a bit to this, but this reality that the Father is love and has love for humanity. He initiated salvation out of this love for humanity. Uh, Jesus, John 3.16 says, uh, for God so loved the world. Um, I honestly really struggle with, it's funny because I feel like Christology is so easy to boil down. And even pneumatology, I find easy to boil down. But to me, I I feel like I actually risk committing Arianism whenever I start talking about God the Father, because it seems like he's the one sitting on the throne, and then the sun's next to him, and then the spirit's down on earth. Um, he is, but that is though, right? I yeah, know. The image, that's the image scripture. That, yeah, it is the image scripture gives us. Um, this is where the frustrations in the uh, Athanasian Creed come in. Which it, it which is that it's it ends up sounding really repetitive and um, really repetitive and like just like it just kind of keeps digging in that everyone is that that this co-eternal co-equal uh, aspect of the Trinity. So we can focus on one theologically at what as we're trying to lay out the theologies here. We, we can focus on the theology of God the Father, but we have to always hold in our other hand while we do that, this understanding that he is no, he is in no way uh, greater uh, than the Son of the Spirit. And when we look at Christology, we have to do the same. We, ha- we always have to be, we, we can look at one and focus on one but we always always have to hold in our in our hands the the knowledge that just because we're focusing on one as we're trying to understand it, uh, focus on one as we try to understand him, uh, that we are only doing so so that we can understand the whole of the Godhead. Better. Absolutely, no, that's really good. So if we're zooming in on the Father, I think. It's right for us to understand, again, if, if the Father is love and is initiating this love for humanity, um, we also understand and believe that God is holy. He is set apart. And so the way I've always understood this is, again, as we zoom in on the Father, is that the Father is um, in heaven or somewhere <laughs> um, dwelling in his, his holiness and his purity. And what we see happen in the garden when sin enters the world um, is that humanity now has this mark on them in a sense that they can't be with God because to be with God would be to compromise God's holiness and God's purity. And so when I think about the Father and this this one who initiates love, uh, who in this profound acts of love initiates salvation by sending Jesus, I, I see the Father God as the one who is so holy and so pure um, and whose relationship with humanity is strained because of our sin. Um, and so, again, the Father sends the Son um, so that we can be in relationship with the Father. Um, as mentioned earlier, uh, we pray to the Father. It's how Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven. Um, and that, and then our Father who art in heaven. And then we understand that to be Christian is to be someone who's a child of this Father God. Uh, which again, I think something distinct and an area of some confusion for some Christians is that um, just because God created um, a person doesn't mean that that person is God's child. Um, but becoming God's child is is what takes place when when God's Spirit comes to indwell us, and suddenly we become part of um, we become part of this family of God. We become a child of God, but that only comes through the saving work of Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit. So just because God creates doesn't mean that those people are his children, which again, I've, I've heard some people uh, speak with a bit of confusion around that, that if God, God's created people, so they're his children. Um, and that's, that's just not what we read in scripture. And I think one of the issues that can come up with us referring to God as father is that we all have earthly fathers um, and our relationships with our earthly father vary. And unlike God, who is the I am, who is never changing, um, who we know is loving in nature and good and kind and righteous, um, our earthly fathers might not fit that uh, description. 
Perhaps you had an erratic father who was constantly changing or a father who was very demanding, or maybe you had an incredibly absent father. Perhaps you've never met your earthly biological father. I think something that's important for us to recognize and uh, is just that our understanding of our earthly fathers probably will come into play in the process of theological reflection around who our father God is, um, that when we start thinking in terms of father, uh, we will be um, be applying some of those thoughts of our earthly father unto God, likely without knowing it. Uh, so we need to be careful in that regard. And perhaps we even had a mostly good father, but still who fell short in certain ways. I sure hope that my kids don't uh, don't think of the, the the fullness of who I am when they think about God the Father, right. because I fall short. I fall short in profound ways at times. Right. Um, but we have to we have to stand on the truth that God never will. Right. God our Father will never fall Absolutely. short. And there's that like that. I think that same like, the the words that are being used in Scripture, like this familial thing, right? Like like God calls Israel His children. Jesus shows up and He starts referring to God as His Father. He invites us to do the same thing. These hit us at an emotional level. Um, and that's not something to think lightly of. Uh, we need to engage with those concepts and realities emotionally. But, well, I think Zach and I are well over time for this episode. Uh, thank you for, for tuning in with us. And our encouragement to you um, as you kind of continue to study God's Word, as you continue to engage in theological reflection, is just to be asking the question as you read God's Word of, of what does this passage or that passage have to say um, about God? Um, is there an emphasis in a certain passage of, of one of the persons of a trinity? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. It's maybe a fun thing to think about. Um, but my encouragement as you read God's word is to ask that question, what does this passage teach me about God? And then again, engage in theological reflection. But yeah, thanks so much for tuning in. And I look forward to catching up with you in our next episode. Well, thank you for listening to the This I Believe podcast series. This podcast series is a part of the Equip Discipleship podcast put out by Twilliger Community Church. To learn more about Twilliger Community Church and the Equip Discipleship classes, please go to tcchurch.ca. If you like our podcast series, I encourage you to subscribe to them or to share them with a friend. And I encourage you to take the things that you're learning and thinking about as it relates to this podcast series and find other Christians to talk about it with. We cannot grow in our Christian faith by ourselves. Well, have a great week, and may you grow in your love and understanding of God.